Why is it that people born here who have never experienced the heel of socialism on their neck are so anxious to adopt a system that has killed so many people? Hello and welcome to Conversations with My Conservative Dead Father, a podcast of the exact email exchanges my father and I had the year before he died. I'm your host, Jonathan Grossman. And I'm your co-host, Michael Grossman. Yes, an AI-generated clone of my actual voice. On today's podcast, we discuss socialized medicine. Complete and utter hogwash. Spending on education. Completely mismanaged and poorly allocated. Article 1 of the Constitution. Now that is something worth discussing. And voter fraud, specifically with mail-in ballots and the voting machines. A complete disaster, in my opinion. Okay, now that we've got that squared away, let's stir the pot. More like stir the bullshit. Okay, Pops, let's talk socialized medicine. Let's get one point clear first. We both know what this is, but I'm just going to say it. Just because we socialize some of our services does not mean we are a socialist country. The United States has some social services like the post office and the socialized medicine that the veterans receive. By the way, a recent study, link attached here, showed that vets who had kidney failure and were using the socialized medicine program via the VA fared far better than those vets who were using their Medicare services to go to private insurance. So there are times when socialized medicine does work better, even in the U.S. Okay, I know you're going to say that the government bungles most everything, which is true, with things like the mail system, which is why we have FedEx and UPS. But I think there's something to look at here. And I think a hybrid system, which is what we seem to be moving towards, is probably the best solution. Yes, there are downsides to socialized medicine. And we've all seen the statistics of Canadian people who are waiting 27 weeks for a referral to a specialist. That, of course, is not good. But we're also talking about non-life-threatening situations with that specific statistic. Also, I just want to be clear on something about Canada's healthcare system. It's not run by the government. It is paid for through taxes, but the doctors themselves are self-employed. Yes, they are paid by the government via the taxes, but they are not federal employees. As for the matter of socialism versus merely socialized medicine, we have already seen how badly government in general and a Democrat administration can bungle management of a health care plan. The more the government has insinuated itself into the doctor-patient relationship, the lower the quality of health care produced. I am referring specifically to the mandatory protocols issued by the government. I want a physician who has been my doctor for a long time and has gotten to know my health processes and history. The regimen he will order is going to be more tailored to my needs than dictates from non-doctors requiring one-size-fits-all treatment. There is no question in my mind, or that of most people who have had involvement in one way or another with government dictates that the quality of health care has gone down as government has gotten more involved. Besides, we already have socialized medicine light, and that hasn't worked out so well. Not to mention all the broken promises Obama made that he knew or should have known at the time were lies. Hell, they couldn't even get a website to work. Why in the world would I want to have more government intrusion into health care? It has already been proven sufficiently incompetent to be fired. 
Look into how many of the most experienced and best doctors are leaving the practice of medicine because they are just plain fed up with a government that substitutes some mechanical protocol for the doctor's informed and educated judgment. At the other end of the chain, our medical schools are not turning out sufficient supplies of doctors to meet the needs of our society. Hence, we are left to attracting foreign-educated doctors and, in some instances, allow them to practice here with standards lowered so they can qualify for a license. Ever notice in a hospital or emergency room, the majority of personnel are foreign-born. Before you yell xenophobia, let me assure you I am not automatically equating foreign-born or educated as inferior. I am very concerned about the difficulty communicating, sometimes either because the person does not speak English very well or their speech is so heavily accented, it takes several repeats to understand what they are saying. We cannot afford to have the kind of impaired communication in medical emergencies where minutes may spell the difference between a good outcome and a tragedy. That is just a small sample of my objections to government-run health care. I could go on, but I think I have conveyed to you my concerns. As for if that would not make us a socialist state, consider this. The government does not have to own the facilities that produce goods or services. If it has unlimited control over all those activities, then it is socialism, as far as I am concerned. And I do believe that is the ultimate goal of the new Democrat Party. They don't even try to mask the socialism anymore. For a very influential wing of the party, that is their preferred designation. Why is it that people who came here at great risk and great cost from socialist countries are so opposed to the socialism? Why is it that people born here who have never experienced the heel of socialism on their neck are so anxious to adopt a system that has killed so many people, destroyed personal liberty, confiscated private property? Ultimately, there is no private property. I hope the above conveys to you that I am not just another irrational conspiracy theorist. I think we are down a dangerous path from which we may never recover. I hope my concern turns out to be wrong. And that is just socialized medicine. With regard to your fear of socialism, you might want to consider that socialized medicine doesn't equate to countrywide socialism, like I said before. Plus, your sentinel of conservative values, McConnell, will never let that happen. You are right that a Republican majority in the Senate can put a serious break on the wild plans of the Democrats. That is good for two years until the next election, when part of the Senate is up for re-election. But for now, McConnell may well be our last best hope for pulling back from the edge of the abyss. Different topic. Without looking it up, do you know what this is? The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Without looking it up, are you assuming my memory works without the assistance of Siri? <laughs> Instead of embarrassing myself with a guess, just tell me. This is the Tenth Amendment. It deals with the very specific limitation on the power of the central government. It was designed to ensure a republic consisting of individual states and not an all-powerful monolithic central government. It is no wonder you do not know this. It is not your fault. This is perhaps the most ignored piece of the Constitution. Ignored by legislators, 
ignored by courts, ignored by presidents, and most of all, ignored by the education system, which has indoctrinated generations of youth and ignored our history, our traditions, and most of all, our sense of patriotic pride. If you have any doubts about the culpability of our education system, I urge you to find and watch videos of jaywalking and Waters World segments in which they visit colleges and other places and pose questions of civics, history, and politics to people and get the most ignorant and outrageous answers. One wonders how these people function in a real world. Granted, the segments are edited and include only the most outrageously ignorant answers. The point is that there are so many of them available. They are so easily found, and the speakers themselves are totally unashamed of their answers and their own ignorance. Regarding the ignorance, totally agree. Not only the Constitution, but basic geography as well. We are so myopic. And how can we expect a worldview without an understanding of our own country? But we can't just fault the education system for this deficit. You don't blame a pilot for a poor landing when the technicians didn't properly prep the plane for flight. Just like you can't blame the technician if the pilot uses the controls incorrectly. It has to be a holistic approach. I don't think we should resist an increase in the education budget because we aren't getting results with our current budget. Yes, don't throw good money after bad. But we should take a second to see where it's breaking down. I went to great schools that were well-funded. I did well. But I still got the capital of Pennsylvania wrong when Owen asked me last night. I mean, it was embarrassing and true. However, somehow I do know the capital of Ethiopia because my friend Russell in college once made it a point for me to learn it. He has a true love for international geography and affairs. I understand your point about the pilot. However, there is one other dimension to that scenario that I don't think has a parallel in the education system. When an airline pilot screws up, and yes, a hard landing can be considered a screw-up, lacking any extraneous factors, he is taken out of the duty roster, sent for additional remedial training, and not returned to duty until he passes a test ride with one of the airline's check pilots. I don't see any parallel to that in the education system when a teacher screws up. What I see is an overprotective union that keeps underperforming teachers at work in the classroom when they ought not be there. Huge difference, in my opinion. Your point, however about part of the responsibility falling on the parents of the students and the students themselves, is well taken. Okay, if cutting budgets is not an answer, and the existing budgets that already spend more money per student produce inferior results, one has to wonder what is the answer. How about a massive boycott of overpriced private elementary schools and high schools? It'll never happen. But I wish people would stop drinking the Kool-Aid that every private school offers a better education than its public equivalent, just like every charter school isn't inherently better either. It comes down to the teachers. The union shouldn't be protecting inferior teachers, and frankly, I wish the parents of the student body could petition for removal of those teachers in those situations. That said, if we paid teachers a better salary, it might attract and retain better public school teachers, which would hopefully improve education. Although this solution requires better budget management, which doesn't really answer your question. One of the big problems in funding is that it's connected to attendance and state testing. But if all we're trying to do is teach kids to memorize certain facts so that they test well, they ultimately retain nothing and learn very little. 
We should be teaching kids how to think, not test. Ever notice how your doctor is looking things up on the computer when you ask them questions? Yeah, they were probably, hopefully, a top student at their school and probably tested very well. But that's not how they practice medicine these days. They look things up. They reference the Internet. They reference their resources. And this is also how most people do their jobs these days. No one is remembering everything anymore. It's about application, not memorization. Therefore, the testing should be changed to account for how the world actually works these days. To me, that's the biggest improvement that we could make in our education system. Okay, pivoting here a bit. What is your opinion on Alito stepping in saying to set aside all ballots received after 8 p.m. on Election Day? Isn't that an overreach given the Supreme Court already weighed in on this for Pennsylvania and it was locked at 4-4 and therefore got sent back to the state court? I'm glad Alito had the balls to do it. There is so much controversy swirling about dozens and dozens of ballot counts that it cries out for examination. As far as the Supreme Court having already ruled, that does not prevent it from reconsidering the matter. I submit that one of the main reasons it did not rule the first time around was the closeness to the election. They did not want their ruling to affect the outcome. And I think they were right. Waiting until after the election allows them to have it both ways. They can sustain their prior ruling or they can overrule it without it impacting legitimate ballots. Ruling before the election might have prevented some people from voting or might have prevented the counting of ballots that should have been counted. Article 1 of the Constitution provides that the legislature of each state shall set the election laws for that state. The issue before the Pennsylvania court the first time around was the change in the cutoff time for ballots to cast and to be counted. The judge unilaterally ruled in favor of the Democrats who wanted to change the cutoff date for filing ballots and the cutoff date for those ballots to be counted. In so doing, he assumed power he does not have. He violated the Constitution. As an aside, this judge has a track record for ignoring the law and issuing orders that suit his political agenda. Look into the scandal he created with a clearly illegal ruling. In the case of General Flynn, it seems that when the Democrats cannot win by the existing rules, they want to change the rules so they always win. There are videos that will show you the same Democrats who pontificated one thing on an issue in the past now advocate for the opposite. It only depended on which way supported their effort to win at all costs. Consider these two examples. They thought everything was fine and dandy all those decades where the activist judges made up a majority of the Supreme Court. Now that the pendulum has swung, and there may actually be a constructionist majority, they want to increase the number of seats on the Supreme Court and, of course, do so when there is a Democratic president in office. The term for this kind of chicanery is packing the court. By the way, even the Democrats' idol RBG consistently opined that nine seats is just fine and that it would not be wise for either side to pack the court. I'll refrain from discussing Biden's answer when he was recently asked his position on court packing. I guess I can't refrain, he replied. He will let us know after the election. Another example is this. The Electoral College was fine when it elected a Democrat to the presidency. No objections when Carter, Clinton, or Obama were elected. It suited the Democrats just fine. But when Trump won the Electoral College, the campaign started talk of abolishing it. 
The Electoral College system was adopted by our founding fathers for a very important reason. Do you know what that was? I do know that the Electoral College was implemented to even the playing field between the larger and smaller states so that candidates wouldn't just campaign in the most populated areas to win the popular vote. On the surface, it makes sense. It encourages a Democrat, for example, who assumes a win in California to spend some more time in swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio. Of course, the downside is it gives these swing states so much power. It also leaves many of us feeling like our vote doesn't matter because once the state vote margin is beyond the threshold, more votes won't have any impact, leading to the biggest downside, which is the popular vote doesn't always match the electoral college vote. And this kind of feels like the antithesis of democracy when that happens. Here's another example. The Democrats want Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico to be made states. Why? Because those two places have historically supported Democrats. Making them states would give the Democrats four more senators and virtually ensure a permanent Democratic majority in the Senate. One might question why now. Why is this suddenly a high priority for the Democrats? If it was motivated by altruism, they could have begun the process decades ago. Let's just say altruism had nothing to do with the timing. The desire to create a permanent Senate majority had everything to do with it. By the way, apparently back in September, the Republicans issued a report outlining in detail the pitfalls and potential problems, serious problems, with post-election day voting and mail and ballots. The former does not require verification while the latter does. Of course, the Democrats ignored it. Guess what? A large amount of the information in that report has been borne out by the election. The report was ignored. Warnings came true. A glitch in the software produced a 6,000-vote miscount in one precinct in one state. Question. 30 other states use that very same software, yet no inquiry as to possible errors there. Why? It was actually 47 other counties that used the same voting system, and they did hand recounts in all situations. Okay, present-day Jonathan jumping in here. In the next episode, we dive deeper into this issue, so tune in next week. Conversations with My Conservative Dead Father is hosted by Jonathan Grossman and me, Michael Grossman. The show is produced and recorded by Night Shift Audio. AI-generated voice and voice cloning by the Play HT engine. Main title music by Dogwood Moon. Please encourage everyone to have conversations with people of varying points of view. Listen, learn, and most importantly, keep an open heart and an open mind. Thanks for listening.